All right. Well, thank you very much for coming along again to uh, to week five of our of our course. Hopefully, you've been encouraged so far. I have been. And uh, so far, we've looked at uh, topics such as the fact that we are not alone, that uh, others share in our experience, and that God is always with us and always faithful to us. So that in all the experiences of our life, God walks. Uh, with us in intimacy and, and love uh, through all of our experiences up and down. And we've also seen that uh, depression is not an obstacle to being used by God and it's not even an obstacle to great joy in our lives. And that's a interesting paradox that, that sort of keeps coming up for us, that we can um, be feeling one way, but at the same time there's this battle in which true joy um, wins out in our experience. And we, we also have this deep hope that, uh, that Christ gives us, that, um, that inspires us to keep going and, and that tomorrow can be better than today. So this week we're going to be looking at one of the, uh, one of the darkest aspects of depression, I guess, and that is the topic of guilt and shame and how it um, can overwhelm us. But we're going to see that Jesus has dealt with our guilt. And we're going to also look at um, some areas in which we do feel guilty or shame remains and, and how God and his word and the Holy Spirit um, have dealt with those aspects of, of our guilt. So it's going to be a very encouraging study and hopefully we'll get some laughs along the way. We're going to start by looking at the, the relationship between depression and, and sin. And it's no surprise, I don't think anyone would be surprised if I said that God didn't make the world this way, didn't make the world to, to include, sorry, in the first place, his creation, the perfect creation didn't include um, mental illness, but God made the world perfect. And therefore, through sin, through the fall, depression and mental illness has come into the world. Both the causes, often, and also the, the symptoms that we feel are a result of living in a sinful world. But the question of sin and depression is not necessarily helpful for us to be asking about other people's experience. Has that person sinned? Why are they feeling this way? These are questions that inevitably don't have an answer and just lead us into judgment and false judgment upon people. Ultimately, we are here to help each other be restored and led out of condemnation, not further and deeper into it. Um, so, so that's our role as Christians. It can, however, be a useful question for us to ask ourselves. Is there a relationship between my depression, the way I'm feeling, the anxiety that I have, and personal sin? That can be an interesting question. And the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth when we ask that question before God. So it's good to know that God won't leave us floundering and wondering, but um, the Holy Spirit will inform us. We'll start with uh, Psalm 139. It'll be there on your screen. It's a famous passage. 
And as with a lot of famous passages, sometimes we overlook the obvious things in them. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We see here that the psalmist has linked the topic of anxieties with finding any wicked way in him. It's not necessarily a direct cause, but our sin will not leave us feeling at rest and at peace with God and the world. Now, in the first week, we looked at um, the very real causes of depression uh, that, that are in the world. And there's a list up there, but what I want you to do is be thinking about, and we'll brainstorm quickly, on how these things can result in our shame and our guilt. And sometimes the link is fairly clear, but other times it's not. So things like domestic violence, rapid changes in circumstances such as a job loss, serious illness, death of family or friends, traumas, bullying, um, war and PTSD, um, hormonal changes and chemical changes that happen within us, postnatal depression for example, breakdowns in relationships, all these things can lead to depression. But how, what is their relationship with guilt and shame? So for instance, let's take the first one, domestic violence. You as a child might witness domestic violence. That leaves you traumatised. How, how does guilt become a factor in that? Yeah, powerlessness to stop it. Yeah, a responsibility. Yep. Things like PTSD and you've gone off to war to fight for your country, a noble cause. Right. Survivor's guilt. Right. Or it must not be that something that you could even cognitively say. It might be that more like a reaction to a noise or. Yeah. But you, yeah, you might not be able to say it. Yeah, you, yeah, you've, yeah. In normal part of war, there's there's killing and death, and you might be responsible for for that, and then you feel poorly about it later on. That's right. So we we see, and it's not hard to see, that there can be a relationship between the events um, that cause depression, and then a resulting. Um, sense of guilt or shame. It's not hard to see how that is affected then in the, in our depression. And studies do show that there's a direct there's a direct link between guilt and shame and depression. And I've often been reminded that, particularly for well for all sorts of traumas that happen, but for kids that go through trauma long after the initial trauma has finished the um, the anxiety and the depression remain because of the way it was processed 
in that young person's mind at the time. Uh, so uh, I think in the podcast that you mentioned, a uh, gentleman, um, uh, when he was young, he had left the toy out, I think, and his grandfather trod on the toy and promptly had a heart attack and died. And the child just felt that they had killed their grandfather and grew up with that sense, um, that immature mind had linked the, the death directly with their action. And, and so long after the original uh, pain and, and, and so forth has gone away, guilt and shame can remain. And then we as Christians can do something further. We can then complicate that even further by all of the I should statements. Right? I, I should, as a Christian, have joy. I should be living a, a victorious Christian life. I should be reading the Bible every day, but I can't seem to manage it. And, and then we get weighted down even further um, with, with guilt and shame. And there's a whole field of study about Christians or religious guilt and shame. So that's a whole field in and of itself. So we've seen in previous weeks that God through the Holy Spirit, convicts us of our sin. And so the question is, the obvious question is, what did God do that for? Did God convict us of sin so that we could spend the rest of our lives wallowing in it? Or did he convict us of our sin so that we could be cleansed of it? And of course the answer is, he wants us not to be living under the weight of sin but rather to be living a free life. So if someone can read the two verses from Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, and then Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. With the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works and serve the living God. And then Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which we, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, so these are two amazing passages that, that really flesh out the gospel uh, for us beautifully, but both of them mentioned the cleansing of our conscience. Now, this is a really important aspect for us because it shows that God doesn't just want us to be academically clean. He hasn't just done a transaction in Jesus that cleanses our, our sin and takes our sin away. He wants it to completely vanish from our conscience. He wants to cleanse our conscience of that sin. 
Now that's really important for us who struggle with depression because when we when we are struggling with guilt and shame, we can know straight away that if it's an issue of our conscience, then God has already cleansed our conscience through Jesus. And for us, we are therefore meant to live with clean consciences. This is the purpose. It's not a, it's not a transaction that's happened um, apart from us in some academic world and, you know, we, we live miserable lives until we get glorified and then we find out we were actually clean all along. We're clean now. Our consciences are clean now. So we're going to look at a really pivotal short verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10. I'll read it. And this is really key to our understanding of this whole topic of the relationship between guilt and shame and depression. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So we see that sin causes grief and pain and ultimately death. We know that sin promises shortcuts for us. It promises a way to satisfy our flesh. It promises an easy way out sometimes or, or a feel-good experience. But in the end, it leaves us empty. It, it doesn't ever achieve what we want it to achieve. But the consequence of sin is that our consciences start working overtime. And there's only a couple of things we can do about that. We can either have our conscience cleansed by Jesus or we can continue in our sin and then try to deal somehow with our conscience. It's an uncomfortable factor in our life. So what do we do when our conscience is sparking up but we don't want to do anything about the sin. What do we do? What's our, what's our normal reaction? Put our conscience down, yep. Yeah. We try to justify the thing that we did that's sparking up our, our conscience. We see a lot of this, I think, in, uh, in our recent politics that if we, if we announce to the world that something is no longer sin, none of us have to feel bad about it anymore. So it's a nice, like we can change eternal law by changing our state laws. Okay, so, and we can also try to silence our conscience, right? So not only justify the thing, but we can try to silence our conscience. That, that could be that um, we never allow silence in our lives. We just keep the radio on from the moment we get up in the morning to the moment we go to sleep. We, uh, we, we drink, we, we do all sorts of activities to try to keep ourselves busy and not think because thinking hurts. So, so we see the godly sorrow, I love that little bit there, is not to be regretted. So if you are feeling sorrow... It's your conscience saying, here's a sin, it's the Holy Spirit highlighting something for you to deal with, and it gives you the opportunity to either repent of it and experience life, or not repent of it 
and spend your life trying to silence your conscience. Now, why should we repent? Uh, let's read the verses. If someone could read um, John 3, 16 through to 20. I've got a hunch some of you might actually recognise these verses. Uh, John 3, 16 uh, through to 20. And, and then somebody else could read Romans 2, verse 4. Two four. Well, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Okay, so we are given three primary reasons for us to repent and to receive God's forgiveness, and God gives them in this order: God loves you and doesn't want you to perish, but rather have everlasting life. That's the first reason. He loves you. The second reason is that Christ died for you and paid for your salvation. So our love and worship is appropriate. It's an appropriate response. And the third reason is that hell awaits those who do not believe in Christ. Now I really love the spectrum of motivations there because they speak to the whole range of our motivations as human beings. If, if I'm not going to respond to God's love, then maybe I'll respond in reverent fear. Maybe I will respond because I do want to avoid the negative consequences of not repenting. God's very good, right? That's actually a, a blessing to us, that he has told us what's going to happen. Because if he didn't, there'd be a whole stack of people who, who just think, well, uh, my life's fine. Um... Uh, I know God loves me, but I, I don't need to respond to that in any way, shape or form. Others will, and those people then might think, however, I do not want to spend eternity in hell. So I will respond to God's mercy in that way. Or vice versa, a person um, you know, who, who thinks that hell's too far off, uh, and, and that's a, a concept that they don't understand, are just really in love with Jesus because they know Jesus loved them, loved them first. So God answers our, our range of, of emotions and, and motivations that we have. Now, it's, it's really important, we're going to continue on in this theme, that we understand that in Christ we are a new creation. We saw some verses around that last week. But, we don't always want to act according to our new nature. So we've been given a new spirit, a new heart, but we don't always want to behave that way, do we? 
And Paul describes this situation perfectly in Romans 7. I find it funny that some people think that this can't be said about a Christian. It certainly speaks to my life. Um, Paul says, and it's a bit humorous, isn't it? We often chuckle as we read these verses. I do not understand what I do, he says. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, it would be easy for us all to say, Amen, I understand that, and basically feel pathetic about ourselves, because this struggle keeps going on. But Paul keeps going on into... into uh, uh, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes into chapter 8 and some other verses that um, that you will know really well. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then into verse 14. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's really clear here that God doesn't just want to wipe away our sin. He actually wants to wipe away the whole stench of death that's in our life. But he wants to deal with it all. And we see the pattern in these verses where sin condemns us, but Jesus rescues us. And then by his spirit we are raised into new life and restored to be the, um, the children of God. Now, obviously, these verses are talking about Jesus' blood, so we see that sin needs a real remedy. It's not something that can be washed over. And I love God for the fact that he tells us what we have to do about it. Repent and trust in Jesus, the Son of God, as a sacrifice for our sins. So he doesn't leave us wondering. How do I deal with this? We could we could try working all the days of our life, do good works all the days of our life, and never know if we're saved or not when we when we finally meet God. But God's saying, No, 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 I don't want that for you. I want you to live knowing you are saved all the days of your life. I want you living in the joy of that. Not in the big question mark hanging over your life or all of your life. So God is good. So in Hebrews also we're given a further insight, um, a a little passage that sends my imagination going. Hebrews 9.26 But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. 
So really simply put, all of us are going to be judged by God. All of us are going to live our lives and be judged by God. But in a sense, we've already been judged. But putting that little notion aside for the second, our judgment has already fallen upon Jesus. We know that. But what this presents is that when we appear before the judge, we will appear apart from our sin. So think about the difference that it makes if you have been charged with a serious crime. Say you've been charged with murder. And you know, and, and let's assume that the judge is perfect and the court is going to get it right. right? They're going to find rightly. So you've been charged with this crime. Now think about the difference in the way you live if you never did the crime or if you did do the crime. As you approach that day in court, your experience is going to be very different. As the innocent person, you're not going to be concerned about the court case because you already know you're innocent. There is no sin to be held against you. There's no case to be answered for. The guilty person, however, is approaching the court the day of reckoning with a very different experience. Will I be able to talk my way out of it? Will my fancy lawyer be able to argue for my, for my case? But they're not going to be resting, are they? They're going to be spending a lot of time bringing their case together. They're going to be restless about it. The innocent person doesn't live that way. Now, you and I are the innocent person. Our sin has been taken away to the full extent of cleansing our conscience of it. So we're coming towards the court case and there's nothing to be found. We're going to be found innocent. Now, knowing that God sits outside of time, we are found innocent right now because of what Jesus has done. Now, the point is... We live differently. The point of this story is that we live differently in the meantime, waiting for the court case, waiting to meet God the judge. We live in freedom. Now, when we're thinking about the relationship between the things that we've done and shame and guilt we can therefore know that if something is playing on our mind, if our conscience is continuing to raise up things that we've already repented of, we've already received God's forgiveness for, if our conscience is doing that, our conscience is not speaking from the Holy Spirit. It is Satan that continues to try to condemn us for past sins. The Holy Spirit says it's gone. Now there's a place in which something might come to my mind and I think, right, yes, I did do that. Yes, I've confessed it, but it's coming to my mind. Why? It might be that there is still something to be done about it. It might mean that the Holy Spirit is prompting me to apologise to someone. 
to, to fix a situation. Um, but the Holy Spirit isn't beating us down and adding the weight to our conscience again. The Holy Spirit is bringing to our remembrance this thing so we can, we can deal with it. So John 8.36 Therefore if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. This isn't a, a future thing like when we come into glory, we'll be free then. It's the gospel in action right now. But Satan lies to us. Right? The whole aspect of the way Satan operates is, is quite important here. We know that he is the accuser of the saints. And he can't change the fact that we're saved, but he can try to put obstacles in our path. He can try to accuse us, hoping that we will accept that bait and take it and listen to it. So Revelation 12.10, if someone could read that for me. Okay, so the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God um, day and night has been cast down, right? So, so Satan is just trying to lay trying to say, Jesus hasn't really accomplished that. You can't really live in freedom. You're not, surely you're not really forgiven. Okay, and it's important that we don't listen to him. He's a defeated enemy and he's a liar. And yet, we still often feel like we're not forgiven and we often feel like we are sinners. Right? We're still overwhelmed. So we're going to have a look at some causes of guilt. Now the first cause of guilt, of course, is that we are actually sinners. We actually do sin. And sad, Satan has great pleasure in reminding us of this. You know, you are a no-good sinner. right? You're pathetic. You're hopeless. But I found an interesting thing happens in the life of a depressed person a person struggling with depression, and that is that this becomes a very generalised thing. And it's worth asking yourself, have I actually sinned? Specifically, have I actually sinned? So I'm feeling like a sinner, I'm feeling pathetic about it, but what is my actual sin? Now, we know that if the Holy Spirit says, well, this is your actual sin, then we confess it, we repent, and we receive forgiveness. We are forgiven. But I find that there is this thing within me that makes me want to feel like a sinner even though I'm not. Now, even though there might not be a specific sin to, to um, go into battle on. I remember a, a mate of mine who uh, um, in school um, who was a bit of a rat bag. He got... He got up to a lot of stuff in his car and, and he was cheeky. He was the kind of kid who was always getting in trouble with the teachers. Therefore, I really liked him because I never got in trouble with the teachers. But, you know, I used to live vicariously through him. And, um, you know, 
And um, he, but he always he was the one who always just broke the law or did something stupid. But he used to visit a, another mate's house, and our mate was a policeman. His father was a policeman, and um, and so sometimes after school uh, the friends would be there, and then you know inevitably the policeman would come home, and he would walk up to this cheeky kid, without any introduction, and just punch him in the arm. And the kid used to say, what was that for? It was a whole routine. What was that for? He'd protest in innocence. And the policeman would say, that's for what you're going to do. You know, because he knew, right? He knew he's a cheeky kid. And I live the same way. I feel guilty about the stuff I haven't done yet. Right? Like I've got to beat myself and feel bad just about being a sinner even though I know the specific sins are being taken away, I just like have a preemptive strike on guilt for stuff that I don't even know about yet. Okay, so I'm just giving that to you. So recognize it in yourself. If you're just feeling pathetic about yourself, or if you're just feeling like I'm overwhelmed because I'm a sinner, specifically what? Repent of it. But if the Holy Spirit isn't telling you you need to repent of this, don't go on feeling like a sinner. It's it's a wasted it's a wasted emotion and it's not the freedom that he has offered us. Okay, we're we're to walk so the the Romans six passage there talks about walking in the newness of life. For if we've been united together with, with him in his death certainly we will be united in the likeness of his resurrection. We're meant to be living resurrected lives, not lives in the shadow of death. We've died our death already in Jesus on the cross. Okay, the verse goes on to say in verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. So it's a, it's a mental, it's a thing we decide, we choose, we select. Jesus has died for me. Now I know, I'm, I, know I sin, but I reckon myself dead to sin. And, and I'm not going to allow this generalised preemptive shame for stuff I don't even know about yet. Let the Holy Spirit bring to you in his time the sins you need to repent of. Okay, so other forms of guilt. Guilt for not being the person you should be. Right? So I just did a bit of a brainstorm, right? We as Christians are really good at this one because we, we go things like, I should be a missionary. I should be living by faith. I shouldn't need an, in, an income. You know, um, I should be more progressed. Um, now, I have, a, I have a couple of fantastic mates that this, that this is about, but I didn't write this with, with regards to someone in our fellowship. But a, 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 an age-old mate of mine who's just a loving, fantastic guy who grew up with beautiful, wonderful, godly parents and he himself is just 
a man after God's own heart. He is a complete delight and he lives for the Lord. And yet he's, he was explaining to me one night that, you know, the things that my dad achieved, you know, he'd been involved in all of these great Christian works and, and yet he was saying, well, you know, but here I am. What am I doing? And and I, I understood. I understood. I, I've got I've got my own parents to kind of live in the shadow of, right? We're, we've we've all got successful people around us who we live in the shadow of. But but he was really feeling overwhelmed by it. And and finally, I just said to him, mate, what has God called you to do? You. Has God called you to something that you've not done? Has he said, I want you to go here, and you've said, no, I'm staying at home? And the fact was, no, he hadn't. He wasn't living in disobedience. He was leading his best obedient life that any of us could live. But he hadn't attained to the level that his parents had. And it only came to me last night that you know how, on an altogether different topic, when our kids go and get their first house or when you bought your first house, there's this whole phenomenon where we want to start off where our parents ended up. right? So they might save all their lives to buy a house in Castle Hill and then we as our as their kids grow up expecting a house in Castle Hill. So our first mortgage is meant to buy us the thing that they spent their whole life trying to attain. And I think it's a bit the same. We see our godly parents at the end of their life or from the age where we come into the world and we start recognising um, how good they are, and we as immature Christians go, why aren't I attaining to those same things? Well, we're not there by maturity yet. It's a process, but we've also just got to be aware of what is God calling you and I to do? And let's be obedient in doing that. And be set free from the guilt of being something we were never created to be. Never created to be. part of the body and then the, as a direct response of that our argument about the way we are becomes between us and God it's not about feeling more ashamed or more guilty about what I am it's about me being honest and saying God you've made me wrong 
Now, as you hear it come out of your mouth, you go, that doesn't make sense. How does the perfect God get it so wrong? So he's made me to be a kneecap, but I really want to be an elbow. Right? And God, why didn't you? So when I love it when we take up our arguments with God, right? Because we're going to lose every time, but because we know he's right. But it's a very revealing thing, and it's far better than arguing with ourselves and, and, and the moving feast of arguing with ourselves. Now, in, in that passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about um, the gifts in the body and, and different parts, and then how, how we are gifted, gifts of healing, helps, administration, tongues, apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, it finishes by saying, earnestly desire the greater gifts. It doesn't say be burdened by guilt until you get them. So there's a difference between us recognising and thinking, I want to progress in my faith, and going, oh, I'm hopeless. Look at where I am. Look at where I am. Yeah, it is. about. <laughs> well, that, that's probably true too. That's probably true too. So, so um, let's be free of guilt caused by not being the people that we should be, or that we think we should be. That's of course in inverted commas. God has made us who we are, and He's calling us into the likeness of Christ, and He's calling us into the works that He has prepared beforehand for us to do. But there's a, a gentleness in that process. There's not a beating, beating yourself up about it and trying to accelerate something that God is already doing. Okay, so what about guilt because you don't forgive yourself? This is a really, really common one. Right? People saying, oh, I just can't forgive myself. Right? And I'm, I'm really certain that all of us have got things in our past that we can recall that we're still ashamed of. Things that we really have difficulties forgiving ourselves for. I'm sure we've all got those things. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Um, uh, God bless you if you don't have those things. Okay, fantastic. Um, okay, but we hear people say, I just can't forgive myself. And what we're really saying is, God may forget my sins, but I can't. Okay, so, so God may forget, but I can't. And, it, and I think that even if we don't say it out loud, we feel it. Okay, it, it could be a hidden thing that we feel ashamed for these things, and I don't forgive myself for it. Okay, so I'm going to continue carrying the guilt and feeling miserable about it. And in a sense, our theology and our face don't agree. Right? Our face that should have a smile of joy on it because of what Jesus has done is being undermined by a heart that's saying you're still a rotten sinner and you, you should be ashamed for the things that you've done in the past. 
Okay, so there's this inconsistency in us. And, and, and part of the reason for tonight is that we want to get rid of the inconsistency. We want to be walking in the newness of life. So there's two aspects for me of not forgiving yourself. The, the first one is, who are you to judge? And who are you to judge even yourself? Who are you? Who made you judge? Who made you judge over my life? Who made you judge even over your own life? That's not your job. God is the judge. Are you sovereign? Are you all-knowing? Are you all-powerful? Can, can you see and understand everything? So who made you judge? And then, who gave you the right to disagree with the one good judge? Who gave you the right? So if he says you're innocent, how can you say, well, I'm guilty? Who gave you the right? You don't have it. You don't have the right to disagree with God. You can because he gives you the freedom to do so, but we're foolish to do so. Let the good and right, righteous judge judge us fairly as he does. He finds us innocent. Let's not disagree with him. So you say, I can't forgive myself. It, it's exactly the same thing as saying, I can't forgive what God has. Right? So just come out and say it. God, you are wrong. Right? You should not have forgiven me. I deserve to suffer and die, and suffer I will. Because I'm going to keep punishing myself, even though you don't want me to. So let, let's just say what we're, what we're feeling. That's the, that's the thing, isn't it? We're, we're saying, God, you've, you've judged wrongly. Right? I, I know better. So obviously that's foolish. If we, we know God is, God is who he is, who he describes himself as, your, your very existence is in his hands. So it's foolishness to disagree with him. It's foolishness to rely on our own judgment rather than his. It's a pride thing. Yeah, it is. We ultimately hold ourselves as a higher power than God. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? So if, if God's the, the local judge, we consider ourselves a high court. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You did your best, Lord. Yes. Um, I, I can't this thing. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, um, you know, in sin, there's often um, there's a consequence there is. Right, of sin. Oh. And even though you can repent of it and, um, and you know, know that you're forgiven, oh. um, I think the reason why it takes... I think there's a time for the end. And so often somebody will repent and then I still feel good. Huh. And it's not because they, have, they haven't really run it through like this discussion, huh. but I think that in time you learn to trust God, right? And, it, and it's not just a, it's not as simple as saying, Lord, and therefore it's, it's complete, it's finished. Huh. It becomes a consequence. I like it. 
exactly right and and we are we are led into truth but the the great benefit is that the, we can then live the future in that truth in the light of that so it might take us years to realize something for the very first time and then go oh my goodness what have i been doing and so for me there was that moment where i, I was talking to to that that friend of mine at the conference who had been sexually abused as a kid and for the first time i realized my uneven scales that my heart just went straight to compassion for her. But for me, it was full of judgment and condemnation. And I thought, that's just... And that was a moment like where the Holy Spirit was just saying, you're a hypocrite. Okay? So, um, yeah, the, the compassion that you have for her is the compassion I have for you. Right? So... We, but then we have the choice when we go forward. We can we can live in the light of the things that we have learned. So we have a thousand ways, I say up there, a thousand ways to avoid complete and utter trust in Jesus. We make up new reasons. We make up new ways nearly every day. Um, we, we will we will try to avoid that. Ephesians two eight says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith." And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's all God's work for us. And it's really important. I've said the mortgage is paid, uh, is paid off, but you keep making the payments, right? Imagine that. If you were overwhelmed by your mortgage and someone came along and just said, I want to relieve you of the weight of that mortgage. And you found that your bank account had been back to zero instead of having that big minus sign in front of it that you've lived with for 20 years and the transaction's done but a, but a month 
or five months or ten months later, your wife says, why do we still have no money? Why are we still broke? And I say, well, actually, I'm still making the payments. Payment has been made. Why are we still finding ways to keep trying to make the payment ourselves? A debt that we cannot pay off. Okay, we cannot pay it off. So don't even start trying. The grace of God is is what you need to be set free from your debtedness. Okay, so here's a here's a beauty. This is one of my favourites. Guilt because Jesus had to die for you. Right? So this is a real beauty because we feel I feel guilty about the very act of grace that is meant to wipe away all my guilt. Right? Jesus had to die for me. Like he was compelled. God was compelled, it seems, to send his son into the world. Well, he wasn't compelled to send his son into the world. It was part of his plan to defeat Satan. Right? And it's a really confronting thought, but God was actually pleased to do it. Right? So Isaiah 53.10, if someone could read uh, 10 through to 11 for us. Isaiah 53.10 and 11. Yep. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, so we see in the in, in verse 10 there, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, made our, his uh, soul an offering for sin. And then, but then it talks about Jesus' future. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. We see the resurrected Jesus. We see the glorified Jesus in these verses. Now, I don't know if I am so twisted that none of the rest of you actually have that thought, that form of guilt, that God had to do this thing to rescue me, right? But it was his choice to rescue me. And he gave himself as a gift for me. And I'm, I'm reminded about gifts and receiving them. Gifts don't come with a cost. We all hate getting those gifts you get the electric toy or something on Christmas Day and it has no batteries, right? And, and, and you can't use the toy or you've got to go and spend money on it. You might be given a fantastic power tool, but it has no backup, you know, no, no big battery for it. And you think, well, now I've got to go and spend more money to make use of the gift that I was given, right? This isn't the gift of Jesus for you. The gift of Jesus for you is a complete and thorough and finished work. It's a gift that he gives gladly and we accept fully. Okay? We accept the gift. Gifts come with no cost. <laughs> Otherwise it's a contribution, not a gift. <laughs> okay? Jesus didn't contribute to the well-being of our soul. He purchased it. Right? He gave himself as a gift. 
Now, we see in other aspects that Jesus was unstoppable in going towards the cross. Okay, Peter tried to get in his way. No, Lord, this, you know, this cannot happen. You know, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. God's plan was that Jesus would die for us. Later, he, 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 he commands his, uh, his disciples to put the sword down. He says, don't you know that I can t call 12 legions of angels to rescue me from this situation if it was my will that that would happen? If I wanted to escape the cross, if Jesus wanted to escape the cross, he could do it at any moment. I'm certain that he, he could speak and, and intellectualise so well, he could have just talked himself out of it if he wanted to. He could have just changed everyone's mind. He could have done what he did on previous occasions and just walked through the crowd, the ones that wanted to stone him. There were so many ways he could have just avoided the cross if he wanted to. He didn't want to. He wanted the cross for you and me. Praise God for that. It is finished, he said. His work was done. He gave up his spirit. He even controlled the moment of his own death. Okay, so the, the crucifixion, the payment, was entirely of his own will. Now, finally, the crucifixion was a victory, and we've got to understand this. The kids asked the other day in class, why is it Good Friday? Why do we call the, Jesus, the day Jesus was crucified Good Friday? It's because the cross was a victory. In one of my favourite verses, can someone read Colossians 2.13 to 15 for us? Colossians 2.13 to 15. triumphing over them in it. The cross was a triumph. Okay, it's the moment in which he takes away all the sin, the sins of the world. He, he secures victory over sin and death. It's a triumph. And he now lives and reigns with God in heaven. Okay, so... So this gift that we have been given, I really want you guys to get this. It's, we've got to take it out of the box and we've got to play with it. Right? Not leave it there as a, as a, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, a warranty card or a, you know, a, a movie card that we'll pull out one day and maybe go to the cinema. Live in it. Enjoy the gift that's been given to you. Enjoy it. Take it. Play with it. Don't leave it sitting there on the shelf. Enjoy it. Now, perhaps the, the, the hardest form of guilt for us to deal with is guilt because we haven't repented of something. Now, I think we will also all know that sometimes we enjoy our sin. Sometimes, sorry? Our favourite sin. Yes, we, we may each have our favourite sin. Sometimes we're not eager to repent of it. We may feel bad about it. We may confess it. 
but we're not eager to repent of it. So, what does that mean for us? Does it mean that having gone from death to life, we are now back in death again? Does it mean that Jesus' finished work on the cross is no longer finished because Chris is not repenting of this sin right now in his life? Does it mean that we go in and out of salvation based on whether or not we have confessed and repented of our latest sin? Knowing that we wouldn't even have a clue of all the ways we sin today. Oh, I spoke to people. Did I offend them? Did I offend them accidentally? Was I too too rude? Was I too... Did I cut someone off in the traffic? Did I have a moment of, of anger? Did I... Did I um, swear and I, when I sit back and reflect at the end of the day, can I list all my sins? To perfectly repent requires you to be perfect. It'd be the only perfect thing you could do of your, in your whole life, perfect repentance. So if our, if our salvation relies on our perfect repentance, we're in real strife. Now, you might remember the humorous story of Martin Luther when he, he, I love him because he was so literal, right? The Catholic Church taught you have to confess your sins to be forgiven, right? So Martin Luther set about confessing every sin. He would get into the confessional with the priest on the other side of the wall and hold the guy there for hours until the priest said, after weeks of this going on, the priest said, go away and come back when you do a real sin, right? Because... He was just searching his conscience for anything, anything, because the doctrine was you have to confess to, to be forgiven. We confess we are crucified with Christ. His work is finished for us. Okay, we don't go in and out of salvation. Okay, we can't begin to know the depravity, the, the depths of our own depravity and, and to confess and repent of it all. Now, even current gladness in our sin does not undo Christ's work for us. He will bring us around. He is transforming us into the image of Christ. What current sin will do is hack at your assurance of salvation. It will hack at your joy. Right? It will undermine confidence in God because it does, as you said, Paul, have real consequences. Okay, so sin has consequences, but we live, we live in the joy of knowing that we don't go in and out of salvation. Now, I know there's a whole argument be said that if we just are living reprobate lives, there's, there's a question mark over whether we're saved. Okay, But Christians do terrible things. Christians, you know, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves doing terrible things. It's a process of being 
brought into the likeness of Christ. We weren't made perfect the day of our salvation in the sense of what's in our flesh. We're going to struggle with that. Some things we don't even think are sins, but other people are looking on and going, well, that's sin. Okay. His sacrifice was once and for all. Our repentance is once and for all because we've been crucified with him. We have gone from death to life. Now, this is a source of great hope and joy for people, right? In the survey, we just saw people just resting in this. So you see the, the quotes on the screen, and maybe it's too small on your notes. I'm sorry um, if it is, trying to jam all this stuff in. Christ has the keys to life. He is the only hope. I have faith in him. I trust him, not my feelings. Okay, this is just these are comments from people who answered the survey. People with depression. Depression is from the flesh. It is not of the spirit. I'm able to overcome the dominance of the flesh when I walk in the Spirit. This is achieved through faith in God, study of the Bible, prayer, and confession with repentance. I can claim God's promises in the Bible, which are strength for me. So people are really gaining strength from being forgiven by God, from having their guilt and their shame washed away. Okay, it's really important we allow the Holy Spirit to wash it away. Now, with regards to ongoing sin, Jeremiah 30.15 is a bit confronting. It says, why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable. Right? Human sorrow leads to death, right? Going back to that original quote. He says, your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased I have done these things to you, says the Lord. Now, our sin can be really hard to give up. Okay, And I, I appreciate that. I battle with that. Our sin is really hard to give up. God doesn't, however, sit idly by and let us spiral down. Now, we can... We can try to silence our conscience. We can do all those things we described earlier. We can try to say, I need to drink two bottles of wine every night because my job is so stressful. Right? I can justify that to myself if I work really hard at justifying it and then I can tell God that that's what's required. Um, so we can, we can try to do that. We can try to silence our conscience as we said earlier. But God will not just allow us to just walk away from him and keep walking. Now, sometimes he can get quite rough with us as a reminder. Now, some years ago, I had a friend who really badly hurt me. Questioned, questioned me on something that cut as deep as... As a, as a wound could go to all my insecurities that I'm talking about through this course and it hurt and probably for the first time in my life I thought right I'm not going to forgive I can't I can't I can't forgive it hurts too much but that is just that's off limits where you just went is off limits right 
I was hurt. But I, in my heart, said, I'm not going to forgive. Right? A little while later, I found myself really sick. And over several days, I could not hold anything down. Everything I ate and everything I drank came back up. And after about four days, I was starting to get really nervous. I was thinking, this, this cannot keep going. And I remember the moment when I was crouching at the toilet, vomiting my last glass of water, and thinking, this is directly because I have not forgiven my friend. It was so clear in my conscience. God is saying right in that moment, you can't even hold your food down except for my mercy. You can't drink, you can't eat, except that I will it. And I've forgiven you. You can keep going in this direction, Chris, if you like. Okay, I'm a coward. I repented fast. Right? And I went and I was restored to my friend. I confessed. I didn't ask or tell them how they hurt me. I just said that I was bitter. They had hurt. So I didn't blame them. Right? And that's the thing about forgiveness. Okay? We don't need the other person to repent. Right? We need to forgive because we're forgiven. There's complexities here, but in essence, we need to forgive because we're forgiven. If we're not forgiving, then it's saying something about the way we're processing Jesus' own sacrifice for us. Right? And and, and I, I went to my friend and, and I and I said, I've, I've been harboring lack of forgiveness and bitterness towards you and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I also went to the doctor and got some drugs and I, and I started, started holding my food down again. But, um, but, um, but I knew it in my conscience, right? Now, I, I'm not saying when you're sick, God's saying to you this. When this happens, God's saying that. The Holy Spirit's good, right? He doesn't leave things as a mystery for us. In my case, it was bang. It was crystal clear, right? It, it wasn't me working myself into a frenzy. It was really precise. Okay, so, but in essence, and maybe God had to be more brutal with me because I'm especially dumb, right? But we're all led by the Spirit, and God will, through His Spirit, say to us, hey, Hey, this is having a consequence. Your sin is having a consequence. Stuff's going wrong. Okay, your, your family's suffering. Things aren't right. You, you, you're having anxiety and you're having, um, you, you're having these other depressions because, because as a consequence. So, so God is good. He'll let us know. Repent. Now, the amazing thing is, there's not a single occasion in all of Scripture when a person repents earnestly that they are not forgiven. 
not one, including King Manasseh. King Manasseh sacrificed children to pagan gods and he led his whole country into idolatry and pagan worship. And yet he repented and was restored. 2 Chronicles 33 says, Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So you can know absolutely that genuine repentance leads to complete forgiveness on God's side. That's not to say there aren't consequences in the world. We've hurt people, that hurt. These things can be difficult to undo. But in terms of our conscience, in terms of mental illness, depression, anxiety, God has taken away the causes of all of that. He's cleansed our conscience. So it's a fairly easy process to be restored to God. We, rep we repent. We confess and repent, knowing that we are already restored. Now we can explore this topic forever and, and we'll, we'll just skip through it, obviously. But the Lord, the sacrifice of Jesus just achieves abundantly more than we can even begin to get our head around. And, and the, the passage there in Isaiah 53 is absolutely incredible for what God has achieved through Jesus. Bearing our griefs, our sorrows. Wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions means rebellion, right? Our rebellions against God. Bruised for our iniquities. That's our sins. Our, our moral evil and perversity. He was chastised for our peace, so he delivers us peace. And he died for our healing. He's punished for our healing. It is a... We are going to study this one way or another all the days of our Christian life and go deeper and deeper into this very act of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Stuff that we do not even have a clue about today. Next week, next year, we will just go deeper and deeper and see what Jesus has achieved on the cross for us. Unbelievably thorough is his sacrifice for us. We want his sacrifice for us to have its full efficacy in our lives. Why would we stop short of everything that he wants for us? There is true freedom in living in Christ. Now we see the difference between Satan's voice and what he wills for us and what God wants for us. <coughs> The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. I have come, says Jesus, that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So the, We are offered completeness and abundance of life. So I just want to finish with um, Psalm 32, um, 1 to 2 and verse 11. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It's just so important. Our transgressions are forgiven. We are blessed. Our sin has been covered. The Lord does not impute iniquity to us anymore. We are found innocent. We come before the judge. There's nothing to be seen here. The judge will say, why are you even here? There's nothing to be seen here. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Sheep, one side, goats, the other. Okay, we've, we've been cleansed of our, of, of our sin so thoroughly all the way down to our conscience. And I just want to keep reiterating that. It's our, it's our mind that keeps convicting us and, 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 and condemning us. And it's that message that keeps on coming through from our mind. But it, it, the, the work of Jesus is so thorough, even our conscience is cleansed. So if we find our conscience isn't cleansed, accept the forgiveness of God. Accept it. Walk in it. This brings us great joy, of course. That psalm finished. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. We are righteous in Christ. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We just see if we are living miserable lives, we're stopping short of the joy that Jesus has delivered for us. And Okay, and so I'm, I know once again, I, and I absolutely agree with you, Paul, particularly stuff gets just embedded in our flesh, right? It's in our brains. It's, it's been our self-talk for decades, maybe, telling us the way we should feel. It's now in our flesh. Our guilt and our shame is in our flesh, but we've got to bring it to account. We've got to say, well, actually, flesh, my heart, my old heart, you are described as being deceitful above all things. And if you are continuing to tell me that I am condemned, then you're lying to me. And you are being deceitful. My own heart is being deceitful. The world will say, follow your heart. Follow the Spirit. The Spirit of God has got a far better place for you to go than what your heart has. Your heart will lie to you. They'll say you can't be forgiven. But you are. So may we by faith accept all that he has done for us and, and live in it. So I hope you guys will be uh, convinced that Jesus has taken away the causes, taken away the shame and guilt from you, and that you can live in that. You can be truly set free from that burden. Now, next week we're going to see that more of the extension of this life. So you've been born again, you've been forgiven, now we're going to start looking at the next few weeks about what God does with us as Christians, what he wants for us, that he has good purposes for us, that he has acts of service for us to do. And so we're going to see the resurrected life fleshed out in the next few weeks. So how about we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to... Um, Relish and enjoy what you've done for us. We thank you that you have achieved our, our resurrection in Jesus. We thank you for the spirit that lives within us and leads us into truth. 
And Father, insofar as our flesh and our, our new spirit will do battle all the days of our life, we just pray that your spirit would win, that in you and through you we would overcome and that we would start to subdue our flesh or keep subduing our flesh by your spirit in truth. We thank you that your work for us has been so thorough that we can live in it, rejoice in it, have great joy in it. We thank you that we can do that together as your body. Help us, Lord, to be joyful about the role in the body that you've given us. Help us to be glad in you and seek you for opportunities to serve you and to, to honour you in our lives. We thank you for being in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.